Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Anna Kira, a design anthropologist. We talked to Anna about her career path from anthropology to psychology to design. We talk about transdisciplinarity, what each of these disciplines can give each other and the potential they have to create together. We also talk about how she transitioned to design and reclaimed the title of anthropologist. We cover her experience entering the corporate sector with Boeing as a psychologist and exiting as a design anthropologist. We talk about what businesses appreciate in anthropology and why it's important to have a social scientist on board. Lastly, she shares three techniques she teaches designers to practice empathy and active listening in order to break their own assumptions. We hope you enjoy it. Um, hi, friends. We are here today with Anna Kira, um, design anthropologist. Hi, Anna. Hi there. How are you doing today? Good. Um, I'm very excited to be talking to you today about um, yeah your contribution at the Why the World is Anthropology conference that's going to happen at the end of October. Um, but I was thinking before we go into all of that content, um, I'd like you to tell me and also our listeners a bit about your own path with anthropology. How did it come to be that you are in this place today? Uh, it's a very, I think it's interesting because I intended uh, when I studied anthropology, first of all, I didn't expect I would become an anthropologist. I thought I was going to become a uh, educator uh, if, for education. That was my plan, child development. And then uh, somebody told me I, I needed to re uh, take an extra course, and they told me anthropology was easy. And uh, so I took it. And I remember on this first day, the teacher saying uh, that uh, anthropology is all about um, understanding the natives from their point of view and not our own. And I thought that was a very strange thing because that's what I'd done my whole life. I grew up in many different countries and went to local schools when I lived in Japan and in Taiwan and other places. So for me, it was a normal thing to do to understand uh, the others in order to understand how to behave. So um, it was easy for me and I suddenly became an anthropologist. My first job was working with refugees and immigrants, and my problem uh, uh, came up very quickly that I was really good at describing uh, the challenges that refugees and immigrants had in a new culture. But uh, what I uh, didn't realize was that anthropologists are capable of practicing the field of anthropology outside of academia. But at that time, I was so brainwashed into believing that this was not a condition we should ever do because uh, I went to a Marxist school and the school was very concerned about the dangers of anthropology, uh, the dangers of sharing your ethnography with the wrong people, the military or whoever, the CIA, whoever's going to take it and misuse it. 
so um, it, it didn't occur to me that that I could be a design anthropologist or even an anthropologist uh, practicing outside of academia. So I decided I needed to take a doctorate in clinical psychology. Wow. So I also have, uh, I'm also a psychologist. And what um, I found out during my studies uh, was they're much more they're much more interested in the quantified research. So uh, statistics and uh, creating surveys that are, uh, you know, answering questions that you can put into numbers, the answers. And it didn't feel comfortable in the area of culture, which was what I studied as cultural uh, differences and also as a clinical psychologist and the parent-child relationship. How did you put the two together? Well, it happened by chance. So I got hired by Boeing to write a quantitative survey uh, for 40,000 passengers, pilots, and flight attendants. And my job was to scrub questions that the engineers gave me. Uh, and uh, I started doing this, and I kept asking questions. Mm. It was in my nature as an anthropologist. So I kept saying, how can this question help us? Help me understand what's this question going to do that helps us build a better aircraft. And, you know, in the beginning, they would say, shut up, just do it. <laughs> But it didn't feel com comfortable at all. And uh, what we finally agreed upon was they asked me, what do you want to do? And this means that I had a very, this, this is a very important point in my life. Uh, I realized that I had a very good leader hmm. because uh, I said, well, he asked me what I would do if I didn't do this survey, I said, well, shouldn't I be observing people on the planes in their work practice, in their sitting as a passenger when they get on and understand the challenges they face as they're happening? Mm -hmm. And my boss said, okay, try that. Okay. So he said, we, we haven't tried that before. Why don't you try that? We've had focus groups, you know, and so uh, he gave me this opportunity And so I went into Boeing as a psychologist and came out a design anthropologist. Wow. And uh, the work was the pre-concept work for the Dreamliner. What do you think these two disciplines have to give to each other? Psychology and anthropology? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, I, I'm a person who professes to... Right now, I'm uh, arguing against design, or design uh, thinking And I'm arguing for transdisciplinary thinking. And I sometimes I don't recognize when I'm a psychologist and when I'm an anthropologist because they, they merge and something else gets formed. And that whatever that is, but I do know that the strengths of psychology, I didn't learn as an anthropologist. And that was how to avoid leading questions. So I feel that uh, when I studied, I don't know how it is now, uh, but when I studied, we didn't get enough training in how to ask good questions, how to ask questions that are uh, open-ended. We were told to be participatory uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, observers, but not to, no, no real set of how. Uh, and, and the clinical side, you learn how to avoid uh, a leading Uh, you're, uh, the person who has come to you in a way that isn't necessarily the way they, they need to be led. So uh, those two things go very well to me, and I think they're very complementary. How, how did you feel the transition to the commercial space? Um, 
And I mean that in particular in the area of design and developing interventions with the informations that you find on the field. Mm. Well, uh, again, in the beginning, this was, uh, I, I'm a bit older than you. <laughs> in my days, I, I became a black sheep pretty quickly in the anthropology world. Mm. Uh, they were not uh, happy with me because I was uh, aiding capitalism. Mm. And uh, I thought about this for a long time and because uh, I really loved my Marxist school. And I disagreed because I felt that uh, these companies are going to, to make products and services anyway, but wouldn't it be better if it's people-centric? Wouldn't it be better if exactly. we involve the, the very people we serve in this process? And so my job uh, was in, in the corporations I've worked in to bring the voice of the customer uh, in to the product development cycle and beyond the product development cycle. So they became involved in uh, involving all the stakeholders, including the people we serve. Uh, and I also brought in non people who don't use our products and services because I felt that the easiest, if you really want to increase your market share, you better understand why people don't like your products and services. Yeah. And uh, if you want changes, then understand those that refuse to use your products and services. And, uh, but uh, uh, business school uh, teaches you to study the customer. So that was very new. It's still new to many companies when I come in that I say, oh, who's your non-customer? Who are the people not using your products? And uh, this is a, a very important point because uh, we need to, 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 we want to improve things. We want to improve and create value. Uh, and for me, money is the byproduct. So, so if I'm in a situation where the company focuses only on money, I say no thank you. Yeah. And how have you seen the academic space transform in these years? Have you seen oh. it become a bit closer to business or? Not yes and no. Uh, I have a very beautiful memory in 2010 of returning to my school, uh, being welcomed and loved. Hmm. Uh, where uh, in the past I had been uh, hated and despised for doing this. And um, I had become quite successful as a design anthropologist and feel I really uh, contributed to uh, facilitating a new way of creating products and services that was very people-centric. You hear about user-centricity, you hear about user-centered design. I call it people-centered. How have you seen the um, the design and the business community look at your background? Have you seen it um, approach you in a different way than academia approaches business? Or academia doesn't approach business. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how the, how um, they look at business, you know, like the discourses that they build around businesses. What, yeah. How is, how it is it on the other side? What do they I mean, think of of academia and and your academic background? And the business, businesses—they yeah. uh, think I'm a, a strange, strange creature. <laughs> uh, but they also appreciate what they all say is the same thing that they they recognize and learn very quickly that I see things from a different perspective and different from business schools, different from engineering schools, and uh, this going back to transdisciplinary uh, thinking. 
and why I think this is so important, what's missing in most technology companies, what's missing in most businesses is the anthropologist or social scientist or even a historian mm-hmm. uh, who has a better understanding of impact uh, that uh, different things or different uh, movements have had on society. And this is more important now than ever before because we live in a world of such rapid change. And uh, it's unprecedented, the exponential rate in which technology is developing. And because it's unprecedented, we need to understand the impact and try to predict, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, uh, the negative consequences of many of the products and services that we have today. Yeah. What would be some of these negative consequences that you would see from your perspective? Well, let's take social media. Here we are on a podcast. This is part of social media. Mm -hmm. Um, Social media is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because it's the democratization of knowledge. We can basically Google ourselves to a PhD. Yeah. Um, today, but we can't Google ourselves to critical thinking. And the, the, the issue at stake is what we are seeing happening more and more is that social media is making us stupid because we are not uh, using our analytical skills. Uh, we uh, uh, join forces with people who think just like ourselves and we lock out people who don't. Mm. And uh, then what happens is we get these polarized debates. You're either in or you're out, you're black or you're white, but you're, you're not uh, uh, discussing and debating. Mm. And in fact, today, uh, I, had, I, I just flew in from another city in Norway and at the uh, airport, I met with a politician who is not my color. <laughs> and he was so wonderful because he, we had a dialogue about something he fundamentally disagrees with. And we spent two hours talking about it with love towards each other. Wow. Humanity. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen that for years. Yeah. How do you manage to do that, Anna? Because one of the things that we're also interested here is, is bring people that can shed more light onto how to properly debate um, with people that have a different opinion of you. And how, how do you do that? I think the first is I try to understand the other person from their perspective. I try to dig and keep digging and I'm very curious, you know, Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you get this view and how do you support a view as a politician? You sometimes have to support views you don't agree with because it's the policy of the the party. Mm -hmm. How do do you cope with that? And what do you do uh, when you disagree? And how are you... uh, Formed, and is this an f- opinion that you have or is it an opinion of your your party? And I just ask lots of questions and dig. Uh, and there's two things that happen then. I think every human being wants to be seen and heard for who they are mm-hmm. and accepted. So meeting another person has to do with that. So when you get there, then you can refer back to your own opinions And some of this comes from anthropology because we're always supposed to be curious about the other. So we're, we practice that all the time. It's natural for us to be curious. 
um, it's not natural for most people because we've become a very egocentric society where our own opinion is the all that matters and we search out people who are just like us. Yeah. And uh, the Norwegians have a wonderful uh, expression, which I've made fun of. They, <laughs> they have an expression that says like-minded people play best together. And I say, uh, so what I say is, you're right, but my dear country, uh, like-minded people uh, play best together, but they learn nothing. Hmm. And so it's through diversity that we learn. Hmm. And that means diversity of thought. And I, I, I find that I learn by letting somebody else tell me their ways. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I can also pick through it and say, you know, try and pick through the logic uh, and say, but but this doesn't make sense. You said this, but how does yeah. that fit with that? But I don't do it in a rude way. You mm-hmm. could say the same thing. You said that, but then you say that, and now you're not uh, making sense. Mm-hmm. That's not very inviting to the conversation. So, um, how would you? How what would you advise somebody that is not trained in this, um, you know, practice of curiosity and empathy? Um, to start? Well, I call the, the practice active listening and I have three techniques that I, I educate on. So I'm teaching a design school. I don't teach in an anthropology mm-hmm. uh, department. I teach in a, a design department. And I train uh, my designers on three uh, techniques. The one is called mirroring. So say a statement to me, any statement. Okay, it's cold outside. Cold outside? Yes. Should I say something more? <laughs> well, silence is your your friend because you started speaking again. And so by mirroring what you said, uh, you answered yes. And then I'm quiet. I could say, could you tell me more? Mm-hmm. Or I can maintain the silence to see if I can get you to tell me more without that. And that's one technique, the okay. mirroring. Uh, and you, of course, were on the radio and it feels awkward. Uh, <laughs> the second one is, uh, so mirroring is the first. Uh, then there's one called the boomerang. So often when you're uh, interviewing someone or talking to the, someone, they might say something like, you know, am I making sense? Do you understand what I mean by this? Mm-hmm. And then your response back is, what do you think? What should I understand? Um, you know, that you boomeranging means that you put it back on them. So if they ask a question, instead of answering it, you, you, you make it clear that you're interested in the other person and not yourself. Okay. It doesn't matter what I think. It's Mm -hmm. all that matters is what you think. Um, and then the third is my favorite and to understand it for people who don't know who Columbo is, they need to go to YouTube and watch a Columbo episode. Okay. The detective, right? Yes, the detective. <laughs> and he, he played stupid. Mm. So he would say, and my boss used to do this to me at Microsoft. Yeah. Anna, help me understand. And that is an amazing phrase. So I could say, you know, I just saw you do this. Could you help me understand why are you doing this? Uh, or I'm confused right now. Um, you said this hmm. and then you said this, help me understand 
what these two things mean to you. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand. And so by, by doing that and by uh, acting like an alien in a sense, you, you, you pretend you don't know because, and there's a really important reason why, we spend our whole lives assuming we understand the other person. Mm-hmm. And assuming makes an ass out of you and me. Yeah. And so how do you break the habit of assuming you understood? You question your assumptions. Yeah. And that's what the, these three techniques, and particularly Colombo, they help you break your own assumptions because it's, it's, it's almost a safeguard to ensure that you check your own assumptions. Yeah. How, how, do you, how are you, how, oh, sorry, <laughs> how yeah. do you um, remember them in the moment, Anna? Practice, 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 practice. <laughs> For me today, uh, I'm nearly 60 years old. Um, to me today, it's so natural, I don't recognize it. Um, I, I teach it. Uh, and my students all say whether they are business in a business, I'll do it for corporations uh, or in the classroom. It doesn't matter where I'm doing this. I, I say this is your most important skill is to learn how to see things from others' perspectives and not your own. And it breaks against all the learning we have and also the way we think. Because if you were to tell me it's cold outside, I usually say, yeah, it's cold here too. And so by saying that, I have no idea what cold is for you. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you have no idea what cold is for me unless we're standing together. Yeah. So cold in the Netherlands and cold in Norway are two different things. It usually doesn't get to be minus 25 degrees centigrade in Netherlands. No. Uh, But you don't know. If we just assume we understand each other, we don't realize that or cold in Hawaii is a different (laughs) cold than you're uh, uh, out in a snowstorm in Norway. Hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you to speak a bit to the topic that you will be talking at the Why the World is Anthropologist. Um, I read the title of the presentation, but I must confess that um, it was not clear to me what it is about. So, Can you read the title for me? I will. Just a second. Yeah. Avoiding the Apocalypse, a Design oh, yeah. Anthropological Perspective on Reflected Change. So... Um And this is one of my favorite talks. Uh, It's because I believe we are losing humanity. I believe societies uh, have lost their rituals. They uh, are not creating new ones. Uh, I believe that we are, our uh, communities are breaking apart and being fragmented. That's the biggest threat to society today is fragmentation. And um, I am concerned about this as a a basic uh, uh, fundamental part of who humans are. Um, And quite frankly, I'm not uh, an optimist. I think we're going to end up with a virus. You know, nature is going to get back at us. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some way, it could be from the global warming. It could be a virus uh, released from the uh, permafrost that melts. 
uh, in the Arctic Circle. Um, but there, there are other things out there, and it's menacing. And uh, there's a reason Trump is in office. There is a reason that there is a, a, a strong fascist movement uh, in Europe that uh, uh, frightens me that we are not referring to the past and, and our governments uh, and our business organizations are saying we need more technologists. And I don't think we need more technologists. I think we need that technologists to work hand in hand. Oh, they're also saying we don't need more historians and more uh, anthropologists and more uh, humanities and mm-hmm. social. We have too much of that. We need more technologists. And I think they're forgetting um, that they're not looking at the consequences of what we have created on how it has affected society. And I don't consider it progression. Progression. Well, it's a, a progression is a destruction too. Yeah. And so um, how do, if we want to, to bring a balance, I also believe, just so you know, I believe that technology is also a blessing. It's a, again, just as I talked about social media, technology is a blessing and a curse. So how do we mitigate so that we have more blessings and less curses? Mm-hmm. And we need to think about the consequences of what we build and not in the past, that would be a historical perspective, but the historians can tell us what's happened in the past when change happens too rapidly. Uh, and uh, the the anthropologists uh, and uh, psychologists and sociologists can talk a little bit more about the present and we can try to predict what will happen if we don't try and fix it. Yeah. So that yeah. Needs to, they need to work together with the technologists. When you work together, we come back to this transdisciplinary approach. Yeah. The transdisciplinary approach will give us new methods, new ways of doing things that we haven't even discovered. Yeah. Do you have some specific areas of impact of technology that you would focus on? Uh, I will. I don't want to tell you all okay. of them. I've already <laughs> mentioned social media as an example. Hmm. Uh, but we can uh, also look at robotic robotics. Uh, uh, I'm uh, horrified sometimes if we read into the policies of what uh, welfare technology is supposed to do. And I think we as designers and design anthropologists, it's our uh, uh, responsibility, ethical responsibility to say no to some of the projects we, we, we join. Because is it helping the world? Is it really helping the old people? Uh, my worst fear in life is that they put a, a safety alarm around my neck and leave me at home for the next 40 years alone, naked and uh, abandoned because they have a system that can tell them if I'm alive or not. Yeah. And I'll hang myself with that thing. I tell you, if you <laughs> give me one of these things to put around my neck, I'll just hang myself with it. <laughs> Uh, but uh, um, that's not what people need. We need to, to not, no technology will uh, replace the human touch. And yeah. we are social animals, whether we like to admit it or not. Do you see that as, a, as an understanding that is becoming um, more obvious in, in the technology space or in the design space, the, the value of, of the human? 
Yes, I think I'm seeing it more and more in the business space. They're still looking at their numbers too much, but they, they're uh, acknowledging it. But the uh, some places I'm seeing that people are more and more interested in this and realizing that to create value uh, has a better result than just focusing on your money. When you focus on your money, it's short-term gain at the cost of the customer experience. Uh, in the private sector and it's short-term gain at the cost of the citizen in the public sector. Yeah. In uh, When you are thinking about the experience the patient has in the public sector, if it's health, or if you're thinking of the experience of the employees or you're thinking of the experience of the passengers on an airplane uh, and understanding it from their perspective, you have an ability to meet real needs, real problems, real challenges that people are facing, not the ones you impose upon them. And uh, when you do that, you you create value, both for the organization that you work for, but also for the people you serve. Yeah. And then when you create value, then in the private sector, you get a reward in the form of uh, fi uh, financial growth. In the public sector, you get the reward in the form of financial saving. So either way, it's uh, beneficial to society and it's important that we are uh, involved with the beneficiaries of any service or any uh, product. Yeah. And it's our ethical responsibility. Mm. You were also mentioning earlier, and actually maybe all throughout our conversation, the power of, um, of transdisciplinarity. Um, yeah. would, you, would you see this as being something also acknowledged in the academic space, something uh, that is worked towards? Um, yes and no. It's talked about. We have a lot of programs that are interdisciplinary, but there's a big difference. Um, there's a difference between owning your subject matter and uh, fighting for your subject matter to be the most important mm. than uh, working together and actually developing new ones. You mentioned earlier that you would be working uh, with a private company and uh, research in data sciences. Yeah. The collaboration uh, in that, if you, you, you manage it, then you would be able to come up with new methodologies, new ways of looking at things mm -hmm. that will amaze us all. But if you each hold on to your own disciplines and are your own uh, needs, you won't be able to, uh, to, to tr transcend and it yeah. won't be transdisciplinary. And so I don't think academia has quite uh, uh, understood this. It's now talked about, and I think people are researching this, and I think we will find really great results. Hmm. So do you see it more visible then in the, in the uh, business sector? I see it uh, mostly uh, in design consultancy. Hmm. Uh, so it's uh, an, it's an, it's new. It's very new. It's sort of transcending also this design thinking, which is the big buzzword uh, now. Uh -huh. and, uh, but it's it's more important because the danger with design thinking is it's designers thinking that they're anthropologists, <laughs> and that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how, how how do you mean that? Why can you share a bit more? 
Well, I, I'm going to, uh, yes, I can, but only uh, with one caveat. And that is just because you have a design degree doesn't mean you're a good designer. And just because you have an anthropology degree doesn't mean you're a good anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you're, uh, you have a psychology degree, it means you're a good psychologist. The opposite is also true. Just because you're not a psychologist doesn't mean you're not a good psychologist. So sometimes people are just great at understanding other people. Yeah. So that's very important to remember. But uh, when designers say they're ethnographers and have had one week training being an ethnographer and uh, an ethnographer has had seven years training at being an ethnographer, who do you think has had the most practice and understanding of what it means to be an ethnographer? Rhetorical question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> and, and this is the, the challenge, as is me calling myself a design anthropologist. I'm not good at the visualization piece which is also a very fundamental part of being a good designer. Uh, so uh, and then I say, well, I'm my core is anthropology. I can come with that. And frankly, I think anthropologists and designers alike should be facilitating change in organizations. I don't come saying I'm the big expert and I know everything. Mm-hmm. It's how do I work together with my engineers and uh, business development people working together and looking at the same thing from different sides? And what happens is we realize, oh, we're looking at the same mountain, but we see it differently because we're standing in different places. Yeah. And when we, we do that, we take that helicopter view and suddenly we're all together rising above and going, oh, my God, look at this beautiful mountain. <laughs> Uh, then we're, we've reached this beautiful, what I call the sweet spot, this magical moment mm. where we can actually make change. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's, that's, that's something worthy to, um, to, to try to work towards because I also think that these collaborations between disciplines are not always very easy <laughs> and there's a lot of, um, you know, trust and foundational work that needs to be put into, having those kind of conversations um, and not holding on each to each other's discipline, no? Exactly. Mm. And again, our skills as active listeners, uh, mirroring, uh, boomerang and Columbo are, are essential to this because there isn't a human being on this planet that doesn't want to be accepted and understood and listened to for who they are. Yeah, that this this has been great, Anna. I have like five, ten more questions to ask you, but uh, I'm really mindful of the of the time. Yes. Um, and and for for those of our listeners that have managed to grab a spot at the Why the Wellness Anthropology um, at the end of October, maybe they get a chance to um, to ask you more questions in person. <laughs> I would enjoy that very much. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.